Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Juanced, The show that challenges popular conceptions, thinks critically, examines independently, and most of all, seeks nuance. Each episode features a different guest. We'll dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, tech, culture, and more connected to Israel and the Jewish world. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings out there in podcast land, and welcome to Juance, the show that brings you a nuanced exploration of Israel, the Jewish world, and beyond. I'm Benny Shoulder. I'm Dan Pfefferman. Welcome to another episode of Juanced. So make sure uh, you are following us on Instagram. We are at Juanced and on Twitter at Juanced Podcast for all the updates, episodes, links, all that kind of stuff. And as always, make sure to subscribe to Juanced on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're getting your podcast daily doses. And of course, we'd love it if you leave us a nice review, five stars or whatever it is. Uh, some people have hinted that it might make a difference. So, dude. How you doing? Good. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. We're sitting here in the offices of Times of Israel, one of our favorite uh, Israeli newspapers with uh, the one and only David Horvitz. Hello, folks. How you Hi. doing? I'm good. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here with you. And uh, it's been a crazy time in Israel. It's been a crazy time in the world. So we got... I didn't uh, notice. <laughs> you didn't notice? No. <laughs> Did you turn off your phone for the past uh, year? I tried to. Past month? <laughs> it's, um, look, man, it's, 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 everybody knows, our listener knows, I work in tourism. It's kind of like a roller coaster. We were yeah, about right. to open and now we're not opening because like some school kids in Modin have, have uh, the, the Delta variant and round and round we go. So. Uh, we're but, back at that again. You, yeah. you just had your parents visit. My parents came to visit from the States. You're hoping to visit the States. Are you, you going anywhere this summer? Or uh, did I think not. Um, <laughs> I'd like to. Um, but no, it looks like, uh, I mean, we're being advised by our prime minister, you know, don't, don't um, make non-essential travel. So I'm a very dutiful Israeli. Dutiful, dutiful citizen. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so essentially, uh, we haven't been here for a couple of weeks. Our listeners might've noticed we, uh, we had a lot going on. I had a tour group in the country, which was interesting for the first time in, in God knows how long, a year and a half, something like that. Uh, uh solidarity mission from Palm Beach County's Jewish Federation was here. Let's hope they can start coming back. I mean, uh, yeah. you know, just the world gets back to normal and, and the lifeblood of this country, I mean, a large part of it rests on tourism. So, uh, you were, you were recently in the UAE. I was. Before your parents were here. I'm sure that was interesting. Now the UAE is on like some sort of a watch list. You can't go there right now because of the COVID situation, which is interesting to me because they were on the, with the vaccines, the same as Chinese vaccines, not as effective. How could they make such a mistake? I don't know. I think they want to get ahead of the curve. But uh, anyway, we've got a lot to talk about today. So we're sitting here with uh, David Horowitz, founding editor of the Times of Israel, the fastest growing current affairs website in the Jewish world. That's impressive. Average 8 million monthly users and 40 million monthly page views. Provides independent, nonpartisan coverage of Israel, the region, and the Jewish world. Also in Hebrew, French, Arabic, and Persian. David was previously editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post from 2004 to 2011 and editor and publisher of the award-winning news magazine, The Jerusalem Report. He's written for, from Israel for newspapers around the world, including the New York Times, LA Times, Irish Times, didn't realize that was a thing, 
That's a thing. That's and, a very and, serious <laughs> newspaper. Is it? Okay. Sure. And the London Independent and has been a frequent interviewee on CNN, BBC, Sky, and other TV radio stations. And we're going to talk about this a little later. You've conducted landmark interviews with a succession of Israeli international figures, including all of Israel's recent prime ministers, Presidents Barack Obama, George Bush, as well as Tony Blair, Vladimir Putin, and you live to tell him, to tell about it. It was brief, yeah. I got I got away. He wasn't <laughs> he wasn't disappeared. <laughs> there were a lot of other people around. I think that was you know the saving grace. That's, that's safe, and of course Paul McCartney. That's cool. And uh, David is the author of 2004, Still Life with Bombers, Israel in the Age of Terrorism, and 2000, A Little Too Close to God, The Thrills and Panic of Life in Israel, both published in the U.S. by Knopf. Am I pronouncing that right? Knopf Publishing? Knopf. Knopf. Yeah. So uh, welcome to Juance. Thank you. We're so glad you're joining us. So before we keep going into this episode. All right. So check it out, everybody. Uh, Juance is a listener-supported podcast. We rely on the generous support of listeners like you to make sure that we uh, keep the party going with great guests. Uh, so if you would like to make a one-time contribution to the show, you can check out our, our, our PayPal account. The details on juance.com. We don't want to be unappreciative of help. one-time supporters. No, not, not, we're very appreciative of our one-time supporters, of course. Uh, and, and I think that they're helping us grow to what now? 125 countries? We, we are with listeners in 125 countries, um, including, where, where did we just get? You got Burkina ben- Faso. Benin. We were going after the market of Benin. We got a listener in, according to uh, the statistics, Palestine, which which is not the West Bank or the settlements in Judea and Samaria or any of that. It is, you know, I, th- I think because it, it looks at the uh, cell phone networks or whatever it is. So that it's was probably Itamar Ben Gvir. You think so, <laughs> Itamar? What's up, man? <laughs> no, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, we'd be glad if you joined us, uh, one time supporter or as an ongoing. Uh, contributor, which would be even better, even if uh, consider donating even dollar, two dollars an episode, help keep this show going. And if uh, you'd like to do a live dedicated podcast, uh, check out the Juanced Live feature. We got a couple of really good ones coming up this summer um, for your organization, your community, whatever it is. Sponsor the event, and uh, yeah, absolutely. Let's start with kind of the obvious uh, elephant in the proverbial room. So we have a government. Yes, it's very nice. Nice. It's not the first time in two years, but it's um, uh, a potential end to dysfunctional government after two years of nonstop elections. Uh, there was a government last year, the Netanyahu Gantz government. It was actually an official government, uh, but as all of us had expected, it proved to be um, really problematic and didn't last very long. Uh, and therefore, we had the fourth elections. But now we, you know, we have a government. It's uh, a week and a half in. It hasn't collapsed yet. Uh, yet. It, <laughs> it was elected by an even narrower margin than we thought was possible. You know, we thought 61-59, that's about as close as you can get, right? Because there's only 120 Knesset members. Turns out you can have 60-59 and one abstention. Um, so it couldn't actually have been any closer. Uh, it got in because um, one Labour Knesset member who had a, a rare spinal infection after a routine medical check uh, was brought from the hospital lying down oh my God. to vote, right? Emily Moati, uh, the new speaker of the Knesset, uh, Mickey Levy, Jerusalem's former police chief, had doubtless spent many, many days working on his opening speech as speaker of the house, did not make his speech because Ms. Moati was being wheeled into the room to vote, and he thought, you know, we better get this, this vote done. 
Um, you know, incredible scenes. If you watch that vote, um, it's just interesting to watch the different um, behaviors of Naftali Bennett, our new prime minister, and Yair Lapid, the alternate prime minister who really put this coalition together. Um, Bennett, you know, as the votes are being cast, and he must have known the numbers, uh, looked like, oh my gosh, I hope this is not a disaster. I hope I'm not going to be humiliated in front of the whole world. I remember Shimon Peres in 1990 thought that he had a government and two of his MKs did not turn up for the vote and it turned out that he didn't and it became known as the stinking maneuver right, and now right. it's going to happen to me. Whereas Lapid is like strolling around, he's got three reserve joint list mm. Arab Knesset members who didn't come in until the last minute uh, to vote against the coalition but who would have supported it if their votes were needed. I mean, you, you really you couldn't have made up how, how it unfolded. Do you think Lapid has proven to be a much more sophisticated politician than people gave him credit for? Uh, look, I think Lapid is the either the hero or the villain, depending on whether you like or loathe or believe in or don't believe in this government. But it's it's he who did it. Um, Bennett is is a prime minister of a party um, which has six and a half <laughs> Knesset members, yeah. because uh, Amichai Chikli voted against the coalition, but says now he'll support it sometimes. So you know he put together a party, and he wasn't even able to make sure that all of its members supported him to be the prime minister, whereas Lapid. Uh, wrenched together i don't i don't have a word cobbled yeah. <laughs> welded i don't know we'll see right um eight radically disparate parties i mean we've never had a government in israel a coalition in israel of this uh, diversity and contradictory ideologies uh, it's either a miracle or it's something else but it's never happened before and he did it and you know um he seems to have been incredibly effective uh, in somehow um Putting, putting together uh, um, you know, three right-wing parties, two centrist parties, two left-wing parties, a conservative Islamic party, um, who've all agreed to set aside core aspects of their ideology because they think, first of all, they thought that the time had come for Netanyahu to go with various degrees of insistence. And second of all, they think there is healing to be done. And it's, uh, so the, the short answer to your question is, it's Lapid who did it. I'm not sure that the Lapid of five years ago would have been able to. Um, and uh, and it's an astounding achievement. Do you think that that's enough to keep the government together? The 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 desire, the various levels of insistence to have a different prime minister than the, than the former. No, I don't. I don't think that's enough. I think that's enough of a reason to 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 have done what they've done so far. Okay, they they've got rid of Netanyahu for the time being. Um, I think you have to give them some um, honeymoon credibility. Um, because there's a second thing that they say, which is we're, we're going to try and heal the country and advance consensual issues. And I think what's, what's worth underlining is how dysfunctional government had become, and therefore that there is actually, you might think, well, what are they going to do? They can't agree on the Palestinians, they can't agree on the ultra-Orthodox, Lieberman would defund them completely, Bennett wants them in, in his coalition and so on. Right, so you've got, you know, how are they going to, well, actually, we don't have a budget in this country. I keep not believing my own knowledge on this. The last time Israel passed a budget was in March 2018 for 2019, right? The 2019 budget was agreed. Since then, we've not had a state budget. Now that, you know, any of your uh, viewers and listeners with any understanding of how economies work, it's, it's beyond unthinkable. Yeah. Every Israeli is affected by this. We don't have a budget. And therefore, the simple act of passing a budget will be a real achievement that all of Israel, all of Israel, uh, um, will, will benefit from. And therefore, that's just one example. of. And, and they have to. 
Well, that, they, the government. That's you know. That's the answer to the next it. question. How long does government last? It lasts. It it fails automatically if they can't get a budget through. They have a hundred days by law. They're trying to extend that to 140 or 145. They think that they can. I'm not. I don't know. The Supreme Court has um, ruled on an, on a related matter, um, and nobody paid much attention. And the Israeli right or the Netanyahu uh, camp was very upset about the the Supreme Court ruling that took a dim view of changes to the basic law for transient political needs, and that's what this would be. So I'm not sure that they can. So they've got 100 or 140 days. If they don't get the budget through, the Knesset automatically dissolves. Doesn't matter. Um, so that's that's their big test in terms of whether they can practically last. But in terms of what they can do, you know, they had a cabinet meeting on Sunday. Why why are you telling us that, David? Because actually, in the last government, they didn't meet every week. They kept arguing about the agenda. There were there were weeks that went by where they where they couldn't agree on what to discuss, and therefore there was no cabinet meeting. Right. They had separate issues related cabinets. There was a coronavirus cabinet. There was a defense cabinet, and these will continue to exist. But that seemed to be yeah. the only time that. No, there they, was ever a publicized meeting of anybody in the, the government. The security cabinet didn't meet very often either. I mean, the, the despite all the challenges we right, had, real, right? Real, you know, imperatives, and because the, this was so bitterly rancorous, the the, the Netanyahu Gantz government, they couldn't actually get it together. Not even they were, weren't even required to sit in the same room, right? This is COVID, folks. Folks, all they had to do was meet over the internet. They couldn't even agree often on things like that. You know, the, the, there was um, Israel's worst ever peacetime disaster at uh, at Mount Meron in April. 45 members of the ultra-Orthodox community were killed in a crush at an event that happens every year but somehow was designated a spontaneous religious celebration and therefore was not subject to the usual security requirements. Since that crush, six, seven weeks passed, and the outgoing government did not set up a competent commission of inquiry to see what had gone wrong and therefore prevent it recurring. On Sunday, the new government approved a commission of inquiry. The new Minister of Religious Affairs, Matan Kahana, who is Orthodox, who's, by the way, also a former fighter pilot and member of Israel's most elite army unit, Sayeret Matkal. He did both of those things. Which in, is in, unbelievably <laughs> impressive. <laughs> right? Astounding. What, a, what an underachievement. So he's, he's, this, he's the new Minister of Military Affairs, who, by the way, has been so... Religious Affairs, yeah. Religious Affairs, yeah. sorry. So impressive uh, in, in talking about what he hopes to do. So angrily... Um, responsive to ultra-orthodox uh, MKs claiming this government is not is not Ju- is not Jewish that right. Bennett is not they're abandoning take off Judaism. Right, you know, here's an orthodox man, and he's saying, "How can you have wanted to avoid a commission of inquiry when when four dozen of your own community were killed almost, and it happens every year? This event, I'm the minister. It's going to happen again in April. We have to know what went wrong because otherwise, it's going to happen. You know, this is obvious stuff, and therefore." You know, are there things that bind them together and that they can work on that are not ideologically impossible for them, that, that are tremendously beneficial? I think there's an immense number of issues like that. So potentially, there's a lot of good that this government can do, but it's going to be a struggle numerically yes. all the time. And we just saw the first test where, you know, the, the law regarding uh, family unity for Israeli Arabs marrying Palestinian, West Bank Palestinians you know, will they be able to, will they not? And uh, whatever happened with that in the end? Well, they haven't, they have, the vote has not gone through yet. They haven't got a majority. So here's, you know, welcome to Israel's you know, insanely upside down dysfunctional politics, even in the era of a new coalition. So this is a law that the Likud passed to, to make it not automatic that if an Israeli uh, Arab citizen or an Israeli, any Israeli marries a West Bank Palestinian, Ordinarily, there'd be an automatic procedure for, the, for right. the spouse to become Israeli. Well, that was stopped in part because among the many thousands of cases over the years, there are a few dozen where the, where the new Israeli citizen 
abused that right and was engaged in terrorism. And therefore, the law said, well, we have to have a, a, a more complicated process mm. in, in these matters. So this is a Likud law that needs to be extended. And they're now refusing to back right. it the just new for coalition the sake of did, coalition politics. Right, didn't right. see that coming. They thought, well, there's going to be an overwhelming majority sure. for this. Turns out, in fact, there wasn't. And by the way, it's legitimate. Whether you think it's um, morally correct, good for Israel, that's a whole different question. Is it legitimate for the opposition to say, no, we're not backing this coalition uh, um, extension of our law because our job is to make life difficult for the coalition. Whether whether you think that's right or wrong, indeed, this is immediately a big problem. They haven't got the votes. They don't. They they haven't found a way out. They're trying to negotiate. They're trying to woo Ram, the Islamic Party in the coalition, to not object to this law. Um, our new housing minister from the New Hope Party, Zev Elkin has offered Ram a deputy minister in his office. I saw that, yeah. Right, that's a big deal for them that because a, a lot of the reason for them joining the coalition is housing, bans on housing, demolition of illegal housing. Um, and so and the, the illegal Bedouin villages in the south. Right, so right, any, right. you know, a, a huge role in that ministry is a big deal for them. Uh, is that going to help pave the way to a compromise? I don't know, but it underlines how complicated life is for this coalition. How do you view uh, Ram? And for those who are unfamiliar, and you mentioned this, but I think it's worth it's worth repeating just how I think lost in the circus of Israeli politics was the the historic achievement of an Israeli Arab party and a Muslim conservative one, no less, joining a governing coalition with one of the two parties of the settler movement. It's just not or at all, <laughs> or yeah. at all, and and it's. First of all, it's unprecedented. It's not the first time that an Arab party has sat in government in Israel, as we discovered when uh, we started writing about it, because in the Ben-Gurion era there was, but it was a very different party, and it was not crucial to the majority. Right? It, was right. not, it was not an essential part of the government. So Ram joining, um, first of all, a really interesting party, and let's talk about that in a second, but central to the establishment of the coalition. And by the way, one of the reasons why in the court of public opinion, I think Naftali Bennett and Gidon Saar and people from the right felt that they could do this, was it was obvious that Netanyahu had tried to woo Ram, uh, much much denial, but uh, not, right. not credible denial anymore. It's pretty widely acknowledged that Netanyahu hosted Mansour Abbas, the leader of Ram, at the Balfour official residence of the Prime Minister, which I suspect we might talk about as well uh, a, a little later. You mean the official residence of the leader of the opposition? <laughs> the, the official residence to which you go back when you're no longer the Prime Minister for another month. Uh, just like it happens. Sorry, we, we're digressing here because <laughs> Biden didn't go to the White House after he was no, inaugurated. I didn't, I didn't see right? that. And when you and know, Trump Bar- was evicted, right? And Boris Johnson, after you know, he goes to see the Queen, and then well, you, he mean, you go mean Trump to, is still not living in the White House <laughs> <laughs> in his mind. For all. <laughs> <laughs> for, for those unaware, but, but, Netanyahu has yet to vacate the premises. And if you're listening to this two weeks from now, Netanyahu has still yet to vacate the premises because the deal was he had another, I think, three and a half weeks from a couple of days ago. I, I think that it's interesting. First of all, I think that there's something to be said about the prime minister, the current prime minister, maybe trying to put his foot down a little bit harder on, on that issue. I don't know if he can. I don't know how the, how the law works. The, the law did not is not. It, I, it didn't occur to the law that this would be an issue, and therefore it's not specified. You know, the assumption is when you're no longer prime minister, you no longer live in the official residence with a little bit of leeway because it you know it was not certain that you were going to lose until that vote went through. So, yeah. but a little bit of leeway was abused first of all because Netanyahu has continued holding. Um, hosting overseas dignitaries and holding meetings with political allies and potential political allies since no longer being prime minister. And at that point, Bennett stepped in and said, listen, we, we need to agree that you're leaving on a certain date. And until then, you have to not use it as a political base. It's the official residence of the prime minister. Anyway, let's just come, come yeah. back to Ram for a second. Um, you know, Ram 
it's a it's the political wing of the um, of of a part of the Islamic movement in Israel, um, ostensibly guided by a charter that is hostile to Zionism, um, that supports the right of return, quote unquote, which is a recipe for overwhelming Israel demographically. Um, it, it is not a, a Zionist party by any but, stretch sure, by of, no means, of right. anybody's imagination. At the same time, it's led by somebody who's who's speaking in a very different tone from um, the norm among um, Knesset members from the non-Zionist Arab parties who spoke about wanting greater equality and better relations between Jews and Arabs in Israel. And he's entered a coalition. Now, it's it's a radical move in terms of, of the partners who are with him, and it's a radical move for his own party. And that abstention that we mentioned on the vote was a member of his party, which is in the coalition, who couldn't bring himself to vote with the coalition, in part, but I don't think only, uh, because of looming home demolitions in the Bedouin community in the Negev from which this politician, uh, Saeed al-Harumi, um, right. uh, that's, where, that's where he comes from. He was a local council head there. This is the, these are his people. And, and he, 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 I think he would have voted with the coalition if his full vote was necessary. But, but you see the struggles. He didn't have to, right. right? You see the struggles everywhere. And it's, you, know, you, could, you, could, you can look at Israel over the last few weeks with um, horrible, uh, and, in, and in some cases fatal, um, mob violence in mixed cities, most especially, but not only in Lod. Uh, and you can say, well, you know, this, this mosaic that we have in Israel is being strained and is being torn, um, as uh, not as never before, but as rarely before. Or you can look and say, well, that was a terrible period, but look, the silent majority in Israel has spoken out and said, no, we want to live in peace uh, together within Israel. And now there's an Arab party in this coalition that every party in the Knesset really has, was, was has, willing to has kosherized, right, exactly, right? right? Yeah. Um, and, and, therefore and, and both of those narratives are true at the same time, yeah. what you said. This is an, an interesting question. I want to go back to something that we were saying before, which was, which was about what ties these parties together. And in fact, it's not their most ideological perspectives. Rather, it's their desire to actually just have a normal civil life. And in, 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 if we take apart or take out the part about the prime minister for a second. I find myself often trying to, and I'm sure all of us are in this place where you know people will ask us what our opinions are, and maybe it's family members, and it's like on the one hand there seems to be this sort of, you know, we come from the United States, and it's 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 a very different democratic tradition, and 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 clearly somebody who only has six or seven seats is not the president, or or you know that's not exactly you know when you <laughs> that's not how rule. it usually works. Right? Uh, and on the other hand, I'm like, you know, but but actually this is this is for the first time you know somebody that's coming out or 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 you know. It's, a feeling that there's actually an ability to to get things done that are less than the ideological high points of every party's perspective. For example, dealing with you know dealing with infrastructure, dealing with with the education system, well, dealing it's, with it's the eighty percent we can things. agree on. Correct, model. the eighty percent we can agree on model. And I'm often wondering, you know, we have we have the opposition and we have the you know the majority uh, not the majority of voters in the country but the largest voting block in the country which is the Likud and Likud vote voters and and we know many uh, you know they also have regular lives that they want to go about living and, and whatnot and I'm wondering in in a system where for so many years and for so many generations politi- politically speaking we're all sort of primed to go to these hyperbolic ideological places of you know, what should be in, in terms of the, de- the, the demographics of the country, what the borders should be, what's the solution with the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, so on and so forth. It doesn't seem like there's been a lot of discussion here amongst ourselves as to what normal stuff looks like. Like what, what should a party's position be on infrastructure? What should a party's position be on I think know, the, the education, I think, and I know they have yeah. it. I just I think I they all agree on it. I mean, but but that's 
it's not part of the public conversation. It's not, I don't know what any of the party's positions are on, you know, you name it. Uh, I said infrastructure, so infrastructure. Some parties don't even have a platform, so I have no idea. You know, if I if I want to vote on what are these these parties now tell me that they want to that they want to deal with regular life issues. What are the, what are the positions? But, but I, on those I think what happened here is that for a long time, you and and the public would normally expect to take for granted that apart from the major ideological issues that divide you and that maybe motivate your vote, normal governance is taking place as usual. That infrastructure is uh, um, proceeding. That Israel is upgrading its uh, its internet uh, infrastructure. That um, crime in the Arab community is being tackled by an effective police force, and et cetera, et cetera. And the, what I think happened here, and what motivated, for sure, people like Gidon Saar. I mean, Avigdor Lieberman is, you know, is, 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 has it in for Netanyahu every which way. Gidon Saar, who was Netanyahu's cabinet secretary and his interior minister and, and so on, right, very, very close to Netanyahu, campaigned on, on the assertion that the most important order of business for Israel was to oust Netanyahu because he was harming Israel, it was bad for Israel. And I think unsaid, or maybe said in some cases, uh, was this, this belief that, that normal functioning of life in the country, never mind the ideological stuff, uh, was, was becoming derailed and was just not proceeding properly. Now, I don't know how true that is. I see infrastructure, you know, especially during COVID. Boy, is, you know, our infrastructure is, physical infrastructure is flourishing our economy is, is incredibly effective and resilient, especially, of course, in the, in, in the innovation and so on. So the rights and wrongs, I'm not sure of the point. But this became this, this, this assertion that the prime minister, you know, how, how is it? And I'm sorry to bring it back to Netanyahu because I think that is part of it. You know, we had a Knesset with a right-wing majority and an anti-Netanyahu majority. And ultimately what happened here is that the people who thought Netanyahu was bad for Israel... Their ideological issues were, were marginalized by that concern that, that, that normal Israel was somehow being harmed, that this person was prejudicial for Israel. Now, you, you know, just speaking very personally, um, you know, I think when, when, um, when Israelis go to vote, right, we, we, we have conscription in this country, our children serve in the army. People talk about all sorts of things in the run-up to elections, but when you, when you go into the polling stations, you think, who's going to keep the country safe, who's going to keep me safe, and most of all, I think a lot of Israelis with relevant uh, uh, kids' ages, they say, who's going to keep our kids safest in the most, army? Right? Without a doubt. And that's why Netanyahu kept winning, and that's why when Gantz, because he's not a military adventurer, and lots of Israelis were not killed, relatively speaking, and the country was relatively safe, and he got immense credit for that. And then along comes Gantz and two other chiefs of staff, and they really challenge him effectively for the first time because they can match his security credentials. But Gantz turns out to be a bit of a, I don't know what the word uh, should be, but maybe not quite as impressive as some people thought that he would be, and, and, and Netanyahu manages to, to hold on and so on. But then mm. it comes back the next time, and I think it's the domestic concerns. I think it's Netanyahu battering away at, uh, at law enforcement, at the credibility of the cops and the state prosecutors, uh, stirring up parts of society against each other. So I think, you know... What, what do you think he was doing? Yeah, where does that come from? I mean, and we've talked about this before, and I've heard, you know, I've heard people like Ben Kaspit, who writes, you know, a lot on Netanyahu, but uh, you've been writing about him for years. My sense is, this is not the same Netanyahu as five years ago. Well, that's, you know, that's what everybody says. Um, I, I think the most dispiriting period, and I think there have been others, you know, he was part of the climate of opposition uh, in, the, in the weeks and months before the Rabin assassination and spoke out afterwards about it very, very um, credibly. 
um, very sorry, very creditably, and how you know this this is terrible, and I don't want the votes of anyone who has anything to do with this, and so on. Um, he, in the last few weeks, you know, standing on the on the shore at at Caesarea and saying, you know, this new government, this dangerous left wing government, is a danger to Israel, to the land of Israel, to the state of Israel, to the people of Israel, to the army. Um, this is this is the greatest fraud in Israeli democratic history and in the history of democracies. Um, the fraud he's alleging is not that the votes were miscounted, but that the Bennett took votes from the right and brought them to a left-wing government. Right. Well, it's not a left-wing government, and the fraud, if it is a fraud, is the same political fraud as he pulled with Gantz, exactly. who campaigned in three <laughs> elections. But but the willingness to be part of a climate of debate that got so frenetic that the head of the Shin Bet warned of again of political violence in a statement that you know is unprecedented to come out and say. We have to lower the tone here. So I, I think Netanyahu has performed dismally in the last few weeks, especially, and has harmed the way he he, he is. I don't think the, that he's over. He's trying. He's you know he's planning to to make a comeback as soon as he possibly can. Uh, but that's the thing about Netanyahu. This this the, he became this emblematic uh, barometer figure. We've had not four elections, four referenda on Netanyahu, uh, where where people's ideology was was put up against their their. Uh, support or not for him and like I say you've got this contradictory Knesset unless or until you understand Israel there's a clear right-wing majority in this Knesset and there's a clear anti-Netanyahu majority in this Knesset Nir Barkat had the guts to say and then has since fallen silent if Netanyahu had not been leading Likud they would have been forming the government that's a fact Gidon Saar would have joined that government. Naftali Bennett yeah, would have joined that government. I think so. It's, you know, it has it all swirled around Netanyahu. Edelstein has just come out against him. Okay. From within the party. Well, I, if, if you, you mean this morning or privately in the last few days? No, over the last uh, yeah, week so or so. We haven't heard him, but apparently he has, apparently, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and Arya Derry has uh, bemoaned the fact that they made a mistake. Well, the, well, Derry's bemoaned the fact that he didn't honor his declared obligation to ensure that the rotation right. with Gantz uh, went ahead. Look, the, you know, being the Prime Minister of Israel, what, what, a, what a task that is, right? What an astonishing burden that is. And how extraordinarily Netanyahu carried it for so long. Mm. And I think all of his, Israel's Prime Ministers, with the possible exception of Shamir, although who knows, um, become convinced and became convinced that the country was doomed without them. Yeah. And I think Netanyahu feels this incredibly keenly. It's very helpful and self-serving to believe that because then all means to the end of staying in power, Right. But he looks around, he looks at Bennett, and he especially, and he sees pygmies. I mean, that's really what he thinks. I have no doubt. Again, it's useful for him to believe that, but he looks at them, he thinks, you're nothings. You know, this country wouldn't have been vaccinated. This country wouldn't be, you know, yeah. leading the global opposition to Iran's nuclear program. You're nothing. W without me, everything's going to fall right. apart. And right. so anything I can do to stay in power is, and, and, and is he justified. And he doesn't is even... It's an act of patriotism, right. not just justified. It's essential. I mean, look, essential. He, he, yeah. he, he did like a 30-minute, it's been stated, a 30-minute... Uh, briefing. Briefing to, to I mean... That's unforgivable to me. How, how, what kind of, you know, if, you're, if, you, if your assertion is, I'm essential to this country and the only thing that I care about is this country, you've lost power legitimately, very troublingly for you, appallingly for you. This new guy now, who you think is a nothing, nonetheless, he's responsible for the state now. You gave him 30 minutes, all those meetings that you had that were one-on-one, -on -one, all the accumulated knowledge, you should be available to him whenever he needs you. That's what a true patriot ex-prime minister would do. Mr. Bennett, I, c I can't tell you how unhappy I am that I've lost power, 
But you're the prime minister now. You, you you did it by the rules. I think it's appalling. I think you've been. I think you've betrayed your voters. I don't think it's fraud. I think you've done the opposite of what most of you have. But I am here to help you in any which way that I can until the day and speed the day when I can replace you right. again. That's what the attitude should have been. It, has something changed? And uh, uh, you know, you've been you've been following politics probably a lot longer than we have. But has something changed in the decorum? of national leaders and politicians? Has something changed in the respect and demeanor with which they both carry themselves and speak to each other? Or has this always been there and we're just far more aware of it now? Yeah, that's a good question. And old though I am, um, as you I, I didn't say old. I just said you've been following politics longer than we have. Yeah, okay. <laughs> he even said probably. He, he put, he, there was some doubt. Old though I am. Um, you know, it's, uh, you, you, one tends, doesn't one, to, to think that, well, this has never happened before. You know, I'm sure there have been incredibly rancorous, there have been incredibly rancorous Knesset debates. But the, you know, the, the session on uh, uh, Sunday a week ago when the government was sworn in and when Bennett was, was heckled throughout his I speech. was embarrassed by that. It was, yeah, it, it was, was it, yeah, that, Well, you were right to be embarrassed because it, it reflected so badly on, on, on the opposition but also on all of Israel. This was our parliament. This was a new prime minister, ironically talking about uh, consensus and trying mm. to, you know, to, to act in the interest of all Israelis. Uh, heckled to the point where he 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 all but couldn't deliver his speech, yeah. uh, and um, that it was plainly orchestrated. And the person at the top of the hierarchy that orchestrated is our now ex prime minister. Uh, doesn't reflect well on him. Didn't reflect well on Israel. You know, we've had worse guys. We 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 had our own prime minister was assassinated by an Israeli citizen. Uh, it doesn't get worse than that. But um, but but to but to play the I don't even know if it's devil's advocate, but this, to play the other side of the coin. Most of Bibi's supporters love that he does that, and they they appreciate that. It, it's, it's, I don't know that that's the case. I don't know. Do we know that? I, I see no, demonstrations we we outside don't. Bennett's house now. There, you know, there are a few dozen people. They're very very noisy. Sometimes they're larger than that. Uh, I don't know that. Uh, I, I think what is striking, and you know, you mentioned Yuli Edelstein. I mentioned Barkat. Is that this party um, is is sticking with Netanyahu? Likud has a has an I- I extraordinary tradition of not dumping leaders, of sticking by its leaders. Yeah, unlike uh, unlike Labour, right, which changes you know almost every time, as on which which came back from the dead in in these last elections. You know, I th- they've stuck with him. They'll abandon him if the budget goes through. I assume. I think that's the um, the turning point because then it becomes clear that this government has a life. Remember, it it won sixty fifty nine. That doesn't mean there are fifty nine votes to oust it. There's fifty three votes, fifty two votes to oust it. Mm. The joint list won't vote, won't vote to bring down the government in Netanyahu's favor. Uh, I don't know what uh, what Chickley would do. So fifty two mm. or fifty three. Um, if the if the budget goes through, then I think Likud um, chooses a different leader. How does this year, you've been, you've been following this story for a long time, politics in Israel, that is, how, how does this year compare in terms of its level of craziness to other eras? You, well, the, the combination of the in politics... In terms of you doing your job. Oh, uh, well, so, uh, well, I think all of our, I think everybody watching and listening in any field, in almost any field, just thinks that life is becoming increasingly insane and frenzied and, and hectic. So then if you're doing journalism, well, that's for sure. If you're doing journalism in Israel, well, that's really the case. And if you're doing journalism in Israel um, with four dysfunctional um, or four indecisive elections and a pandemic and intermittent conflict with Gaza and, 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 it's insane. So it, every year is more intense and challenging than the last. 
that's the short. And you've been doing this for a long time. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> as you keep telling us. <laughs> but yes, probably. I, I, I'll just, well, let's just put this out. So I'm, I'm about to turn 59. I moved to Israel in 1983, and I've only ever done journalism here. So yeah, I've been doing it for a long time. So you, you started on your journalistic career. You're from. I'm from London. You're from London. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I, I worked in in. Um, uh, in, in London for not very long in journalism before I came to Israel. And then when I first came to Israel, I was um, uh, working on the night desk at the Jerusalem Post um, while I, I studied at Hebrew University. So, so y- you you were at the Jerusalem Post. You, you made it up to be the editor-in-chief of the uh, Jerusalem Post. And then what leads you to start a new competing newspaper? Um, well, I, I had a fantastic um, period at the Jerusalem Post. And... Um, I didn't. It wasn't um, consecutive. I worked there from '83 to '90. This is ancient history that I sure. can't imagine anybody cares about too much. <laughs> um, and then I worked for the Jerusalem Report for 14 years, which is a long, long time. And then I came back to the Jerusalem Post as editor, and I did it for seven years. And the, the biblical um, uh, uh, period is relevant there. There were seven really good years, <laughs> and um, and then I wanted to do something uh, myself. And uh, astoundingly, miraculously, when I pitched the idea of the Times of Israel. Um, to, to people who I hoped would uh, would help me financially to do it. One of them uh, agreed, and that's a man named Seth Klom, and all of this is out there. He, he's based in Boston. Um, he, d- he does not um, have a role in our editorial operation, but obviously I don't think he would want to, to fund the Times of Israel if he didn't believe in what we do. Um, and, um, you know, it, it, it's it's nice to be able to, to determine the... Uh, the the um, ethos um, of, of your own publication. It's an incredible uh, um, privilege that, that I've been able to do that. And uh, yeah, we've been, we're coming up on our, t- on our 10th anniversary now. That's crazy. I remember, I, re- I remember when you came out, uh, with time, when Times of Israel came out, rather, it to me was, I mean, it, it immediately, there aren't that many publications that are in English that are of a certain caliber in Israel that are operating at that sort of a level. And, and, and by that, I mean publishing so much content every single day. Uh, and, and it was a very, very, very big uh, breath of fresh air for me to see it when, it when it first came out. And I'm, I mean, I can tell you right now, I mean, I mean, uh, obsessive reader probably doesn't, uh, doesn't, doesn't encapsulate it because I'm checking in. Of course, it's online, so I'm checking in multiple times a day. Uh, and, and I think both Dan and I very much so appreciate uh, the, the level of, of, of journalism and analysis that goes on in the paper. Um, well, it's a it's a fine. First, it's a fine newspaper, and, and not to take anything away from Jerusalem Post. I'm also an avid reader of Jerusalem Post. Um, they were doing a great job before. I think they're doing a great job now under under Yaakov. But uh, what is in in your view? What's the difference? What what's the difference in you know why launch this adventure from your personal perspective? You set the tone, but you you were also setting the tone there. So, is there a difference? Are you going after a different readership? Is there a different philosophy of how? reality should be reported and analyzed you know there's my philosophy and and i'm able to to um to set the tone without you know it's it's nice to have to run your own publication um mm-hmm. and that's like i say that's a that's a privilege we we pour our hearts and soul uh into the times of israel the staff has has gradually grown uh i i think it's uh you know i, sh- I shouldn't be the one to say it but you know all starts are are difficult by definition and we you know we've 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 become better at what we do. That doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. We do make mistakes. Um, but, you know, my, my goal and my, my philosophy is to try and report, uh, especially Israel, but also the Middle East and the Jewish world um, quite strongly. 
um, um, without uh, um, partisan affiliation, without kind of need, well, you know, we're the party of, or we're the paper or, or, or of this or that party, or we're, we're a paper that supports this or that politician. We, we don't do that. I don't know the, um, the politics of, of um, many of, of our reporters, and, and I don't want their, their personal politics to, 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 seek in, to seep into their uh, reporting. We distinguish between reporting and analysis and, and opinion pieces. I think that's incredibly important. Um, we have this blog platform, which is you know, spectacularly diverse on, on, on all kinds of issues. And therefore, I think the combination of, of reporting that's, like I say, not perfect and we get stuff wrong, but we try not to, uh, that's as credible as we can make it. And then an, a, a vast, vibrant opinion section hopefully enables people to, to, to know stuff and form nuanced opinion. And it kind of comes back to your question before about how hard this year is and so on. I just think, you know, never mind the, the times of Israel's readers or, or people who care about Israel, but the world generally, um, wisdom is usually between the extremes. Uh, and the, the readiness, I think society is, you know, is, is increasingly um, um, disinclined to entertain nuance and to, to adjust and rethink. I mean, there's a terrible generalization. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's, there's you know, a great mass silent majority who are thinking as deeply and, and less defensively. We think um, so. I mean, we'd, maybe, like, we'd so like, maybe, like to think so. Yeah, well, if, if, the, if they are, hopefully lots of them are our readers, and, and if we're doing anything, it's to you know, promote um, uh, facts and nuance. Uh, because you know, just take Israel. Take Israel and the, and the Palestinian conflict. It is so complicated. It is. And, if, and if you're not prepared to, to internalize that it's complicated... You, you do the chances of making progress a, a disservice. You're not going to be able to progress if you think all right is on one side, all blame is on one side. It's not the case. Uh, and therefore, all the responsibility for improving things is not on one side. And by the way, it's not completely obvious what should happen next. It might be, you know, th there might be a, a way forward out there. Just I'm talking about that issue. But you're not going to find it unless you're listening and, and, well, that's a good point, but it doesn't, well, how are we going to, well, I don't know. You know, you have to agonize and you'll be able to, to make progress. And, you know, that's, that's certainly part of the, of, the, of the philosophy that guides my approach to what we do. Um, so, I mean, kind of a question to you as an editor, as an editor of a newspaper, as, as someone who, who, who's reported and as an analyst, how do you, assuming everything you report is factual and true, because... That's the premise that we'd like to believe in journalism. Um, how do you then choose what stories get the coverage, what don't get the highlight? It, you know, you, uh, covering something as massively complicated as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, how do you go about choosing what should be reported or not? Because if you, if if I take any one of I don't know five, the five five I won't even say the top, but five newspapers news sites, news blogs in Israel, and let's just assume everything they say is more or less factual. You can get a different view of reality by whether it's 972 magazine, which is very kind of far-left magazine, Haaretz, which is a left piece, or if you go to something like Israel Ayom or, I don't know, Seven National News or kind of the more right-wing pieces, you're going to get a very different view of reality. So it's kind of like the CNN, Fox News type thing. Again, uh, let's just assume everything's factual for the sake of this conversation. And how do you make those decisions? Yeah, first of all, I don't think you can assume, I mean, and even if you can assume everything is factual, saying that something is factual, as your question 
uh, indicates is it's not sufficient, right? There is you know, absolute truth. Go back to, to, to things as basic as, as witnessing a car accident, right? Mm-hmm. Ten people can witness a car accident and, des- and describe what they saw as accurately as they possibly can. And, you, and, and, you, yeah. and you may have completely contradictory descriptions, or you might have descriptions that, even though they're broadly speaking the same, you would you would come to completely different conclusions about who was responsible and so on. So, you know, you you don't just you, you strive to be fair-minded and you strive to be objective, knowing I think that you're, you're not gonna it's not gonna be perfect, but you but you, but you're trying, right? That's that's the that's the key thing I think. You you, you strive to be fair and to report fairly. Um, and we don't, you know. Look, I write op-eds, and therefore my my views, which are I think somewhere in the in the confused middle ground. Um, but but obviously, there, you know, when people read David Horowitz's op-ed, and, he, and they know he's the editor of the Times of Israel, I assume it colours the way sure. people look at the site um, for better and worse, and in a way worse, because then then they're looking at the reporting as as reflected through my broad big picture view which is which is not necessarily fair but it's certainly understandable right it's so it's inescapable too it's, it's really complicated your question's a really complicated question okay and i don't have perfect answers sure. to, to the part that i didn't address yet which is so how do we choose what to cover and how do we prioritize because there are endless factors that go into that so some of the mechanics are we have regular editorial meetings mm. and reporters pitch ideas and we discuss ideas and we are very, very often led by by events, and then we're you know not only are we you know covering that speech or that rally or that event, but we're also trying to work out the, its significance and to tell people about its significance and what kind of implications uh, is it going to have and how much of a big deal was it and is it? And I think, by the way, I think that's a really important part of our particular mission. I think when you're uh, relying on um, the Times of Israel and you're not, especially if you're not in Israel and you're not a Hebrew speaker. Uh, it's very easy for us to forget how dependent people are on credible coverage. I yeah. know that when I'm out of the country, um, I, I realize, wow, if the Times of Israel didn't tell me that, and by the way, and I didn't have the, the time to, to, to look to hook on to Channel 12 News at, at the equivalent of 8 o'clock wherever I am, I'm, I'm really, I'm lacking. I, you know, I may know the headline, but how much, how much of a big deal was that? I think that's something so contextualizing right. the event you know, as far you, as you, right. You lose track really quickly, Absolutely. especially when you're like I say, if you're not a yeah. Hebrew speaker or you're overseas and not hearing, you know, then then we're crucial. So one of the things that we started to realize here was, you know, apart from the the it's nice to know what's going on, actually it's vital in some cases to know what's going on. From things as basic as did they change the the rules yesterday on tourism, right? They did, right? It was it was supposed to be July the first. Individual tourists could come in. Now they've put it back to August. People needed to know that, and therefore, first of all, it was it was not official for hours yesterday. And we made clear in our coverage, we live blog. We can talk about that in a second yeah. as well because that's uh, part of our new reality. Uh, you know, is it official yet? No, it was reported all through Hebrew media as though it was a fact. It was almost certain that it was going to be the case, but it was only a few hours later that it became a fact. And we, you know, we tried to. That was high on the site that this, you know, this was being considered, and then it came in. Uh, when you have uh, a rounds of conflict with Gaza, you know, in in the last few years, back in 2014, uh, which was a you know really serious round of conflict. Uh, and there was, you know, there was um, missile fire deep into Israel again. You start to realize people need to know. You know, there's actually the, the, the sirens are, are wailing. You need to tell them that. You need to, you know, yeah. so so th- so there's that. That's a huge thing. The actual inform because it's urgent kind of stuff. So that is is very heavily prioritized. But all sorts of other factors come in. You know, how long how long ago did a story happen? How relevant is it to how many of our readers? That's a part of how high should it be on the site? I mean, we've got this site that. Um, enables you to give 
this is is less atypical than it used to be, but we were quite early in, in modules on the homepage that meant a story could be displayed with a bigger picture and a bigger headline and across more of the site if it was more important. As mm. other pe- uh, Plenty of other sites can do that now, but it was very important to, to us. It's kind of a bit of the print journalism philosophy where if you look at our homepage... At any moment, you should have a snapshot of, of our assessment of what matters most, right? How, wh- with, with, with lots of factors shaping that. Yeah. David, where's, where's the majority of your uh, readership? Um, look, it's everywhere. Um, it's about, um, I'm being very uh, um, generalized here, but about 50%, maybe slightly more in North America. Um, a pretty big chunk in Israel, 10, 15%, which if you think, mm. you know, those numbers that you quoted at the beginning are accurate. Uh, 8 million or so unique users a month, 40 million page views. Uh, you know, if, if 10, 15% of our 8 million are in Israel, that means an awful lot of Israel's English speakers are reading sure. the site. Um, by the way, unique users is not unique individuals, just right. to, to, to tell people that. It means a unique device. So if you right. if you read the Times of Israel on your phone and two other computers, you'd be three, so three of those unique users, users yeah. for example. I well, think that for, for, for me, uh, I've been... Especially as regards to even even your your own editorials that are that are in the paper, I find, and this is probably true about all of the English press in Israel to a certain extent. Uh, I oftentimes wish that what I was reading, because of the fact that it has the perspective of let's say somebody who has the life experience of having lived somewhere else, and, and we're in an English speaking newspaper, so many people here are going to have that sort of an experience uh, in their life, even if they've been living here for many many years. I find that it's almost, you know. Uh, it's regrettable to an, to an extent that it's not translated into Hebrew because sometimes I find that that's a perspective that, you know, even in my own personal life, I want, I want my Israeli, you know, Hebrew-speaking wife to read something and she won't read it because it's in English and it's something that, you know, this is really long, I don't know the patience. It's like, well, no, you should read this. It's a really interesting perspective that you're not going to get if you read another newspaper. And I think that there's something that has to do when we talk about nuance and to talk about, yeah. and to talk about you know, bringing in diverse experiences to an understanding of, of complex issues here in Israel that I almost feel like I wish that more of the Times of Israel was available to the broader Israeli audience. And I know that there's, you know, from a business perspective, that, that may not be the best move, but there are oftentimes things where similar to where, where I'll read a book and I'll be like, oh, this should really should be translated into Hebrew, where I'm reading you and I'm like, dude, this should really be translated into Hebrew. Yeah, uh, so especially your columns and I think Chaviv's like long analysis, Chaviv Redegor's long analysis pieces are definitely things that Hebrew, you know, the majority of Israel Hebrew reading audiences should be should be getting. Is there okay. is there a reason why it's not? Well, first of all, it, it is, and we have a Hebrew oh, site. We started um, Zman Israel about um, where are we now? It's about two years ago, uh, and they translate some of our content, some. including some of my stuff and I'm and some Chaviv's stuff. The, and we translate some of their stuff. Right. Anyone who's ever worked in any of these, in, in, the, in a field where the, word, where the word translation comes in, you have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> you have no idea how complicated it is to it translate is. properly. In either direction, I'm sure it's the case in all languages, right? And, and in journalism, even more so. You know, I could, I could tra- I, we could get a piece that I've written translated into Hebrew and something from Zaman translated into English, and it would be a perfectly accurate translation. It would be incomprehensible, Right. You, you need real skills, and it's a, yeah. it's a long process, and we do it. Uh, but nobody right. should underestimate. I mean, Haaretz does an English version. I don't, I don't check Haaretz English against his Hebrew. I'm sure they have a very significant translation operation. You know, for us, we do it, and we, it was very important to us. It, one of the reasons why we started Hebrew, I mean, there, there are others, 
Um, and it, ref- it's, it stemmed from our reporting, and it kind of stems from your question, less so the opinion pieces, although you may be you know, right that, that there, there's lots of stuff that we run that really is, is important in Hebrew. But we realized that, uh, and, and, and we realized, I realized it most especially in terms of financial corruption here. You know, I think Anglo-Saxons in Israel, maybe not all of them, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, you know, we're outsiders, our children are Israelis, but, you know, we, we grew up, it's not our first language, some of us speak, you know, pretty good Hebrew, but still, you know, we're, 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 we're the people who came to Israel right. and, and, and got absorbed, but, and then it's the next generation who will be the Israelis, right? And I think it, it brings a certain, well, you know, the Hebrew media is very, very effective, we do our, our English thing and we do our best and so on. And, and then we started coming across financial corruption in Israel, which, believe me, I was not looking for or wanting to become um, semi-obsessed by and we realize, well, wow, there's, there's a real, there's a layer, and it's really bad, and we don't need to spend uh, um, lots of time talking about this, although I, I, I will talk about it forever if, if necessary. Uh, it's very, very serious. It's, it's um, a lot of online financial corruption. Um, do you want to clue some of our listeners in who might not be aware of this? Yeah, I mean, the, you, you can, if you want to, uh, first of all, for your own benefit, you probably should look up binary options or binary options fraud. In, you know, as covered by the Times of Israel, and therefore you will be wary enough not to be separated from your money by crooks, right? So we, we at the Times of Israel, and especially our investigative reporter, Simona Weinglass, we, we, we close down uh, binary options in Israel. I would like to say completely, but it's not the case. Because of her reporting, a law was passed. In Israel, you're not allowed to, to, um, to engage in binary options trading, which gives it a more grandiose name than it really should have. It's basically theft and fraud, and it, it's... And it's not the only uh, um, such um, industry that, it, by the way, has employed thousands of Israelis, including young Israelis, including immigrants, because, of course, the language foreign is languages right. is a yeah, big yeah. deal. It's, it's a real blight, <laughs> and it's ongoing, and it metastasizes, and it's terrible. And we realized nobody else was covering it. Nobody else was covering it properly, put it that way. Right? It was, it was reported here and there. To this day, nobody has been prosecuted in Israel for binary options fraud. And by the way, we're talking billions of dollars stolen from people all over the world. We're talking suicides and <coughs> lives ruined. No interest in it in Hebrew media. Why? I, I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer. Okay? I, can get, I can speculate. It's irrelevant. The fact is that when somebody called Lee Elbaz, who was a middle-level head of a binary options company, made the mistake of going to America. Uh, you can't be a binary options crook and go to America. That's a bad combination because they actually prosecute crooks. She was arrested at the airport. She was jailed for several years, many years, and she's not the biggest of the fish by any means. On the news that night, I don't think it was covered at all by one channel. The other channel interviewed her aunt who said, she's a lovely person, I can't believe she would do anything to harm anybody. That was their coverage, right? So when we realize that there's this terrible black, and it has seeped into the Knesset, by the way, there are Knesset members who are in thrall um, to, to um, uh, illegal entities, I would say. That's a pretty radical a- allegation that I'm making, but I do make that allegation. Uh, you, when you see it's not being covered, well, then you start to cover it. And if you, if you realize that, that, there are, that there are lacuna in, in, su- in some Hebrew media coverage, and I think Hebrew media, I think it's pretty diverse and pretty brave in some cases, that was one of the reasons why we thought, you know what, we should put some, some material out in, in, uh, in Israel. This is the country where we're, where we're operating. This is a country that we care about. You know, needless to say, this is a, a Zionist website. It's called the Times of Israel, for goodness sake. We live here. We yeah. care about this country. That's uh, one of the reasons why we started doing the Hebrew. And it's, it seems to me um, this was really the newspaper's first, first maybe only, if, correct me if I'm wrong, major foray into proper investigative 
journalism that, that you do see the, the Hebrew media doing, just not on this issue. Am I correct in that? We, look, we've, we've got a very, very good environment reporter who breaks a lot of ground. We've, we've broken lots of ground in lots of fields. The, the financial fraud field, unfortunately, um, and we're not the only people that do it, by the way. There, there, are, there is Hebrew media that investigates financial fraud, and I'm not claiming that we are by any means. I, I think more broadly speaking, investigative journalism um, is, is in trouble, uh, because uh, criminals are increasingly confident and uh, have, have lots of money to hire very, very expensive people to represent their interests. Um, I, th- I think in Israel, um, it's very, very difficult. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's not, I mean, journalism generally uh, is economically much more troubled than it was a few years ago, and therefore, if resources are scarce, you know, the, the amount of money you can put aside to have people work on a right, story sure. for three months that might, you might never be able to publish. What are, what are some stories that you would like to cover but you can't because of the realities? In terms no, of, there's, know, there's no story that we would, if we think something, you know, if we think it serves the public interest, which sounds like this melodramatic, it's a real, that's really the truth. People need to know about this because it's going to really affect their lives. Uh, there's nothing that we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't try to cover. There are, we, we have stories that, um, that are not at the stage yet where we can, um, where we can publish them because they're not, um, sure. they're not watertight yet. But just to, to put this in terms of, um, fr- from an Israeli perspective, in terms that, that, that I, the, the way I look at it, um, you know, you've all seen All the President's Men, or you've read the book, or both, hopefully. Um, some of you have seen the movie The Post, right? In, in the real world, as it was supposed to unfold in this field, journalists expose corruption and wrongdoing. And the minute that their story is published, if you think of those movies, for example, and they're both you know, true, based on true stories, once the journalists had done their investigative work at, at, at considerable uh, um, uh, trouble, right? Very difficult stories to pursue, very, very hard stories to pursue. They got them out. Then the cops move in and then the prosecution prosecutes the yeah, bad ha- guys. Happily ever after. That yeah. doesn't happen here, okay? Yeah. I cannot tell you how significant, how, how radical that is, what I've just said. In right? Israel. In the in Israeli It does not happen. Yeah. You, 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 journalists, including at the Times of Israel, not only us, journalists expose wrongdoing and in many cases, nothing happens. Right, the police are massively under-resourced when it comes to financial crime, sophisticated financial crime, and it's becoming more sophisticated. And the Netanyahu case is the exception to the rule. I, mean, I don't know the rights and wrongs. I don't know what, what the court's going to decide in the Netanyahu case. I think, for me, case 4000 and the allegation that Israel's internet infrastructure was um, the, the, the upgrading of our, of our national internet in- infrastructure was, was um, delayed by years because Netanyahu allegedly continue to give Bezek the monopoly in return for nice coverage at Walla. That's the most significant allegation at the heart of the cases. I don't know if that's going to be proven. I don't know if the quid pro quo there is credible enough. I don't know. Uh, I don't think anybody in this country knows um, for sure. Um, but but if, the sim- if the same kind of rigor, if the police and the prosecution were able, resource-wise and skill-wise, to devote similar rigor across alleged financial corruption in Israel, there's, there's a vast ocean of it, <clears throat> excuse me, and it's getting worse. Do you think it's because it's quote-unquote perceived as, or perceived quote-unquote as a victimless crime that's affecting people abroad and not anybody here in Israel? And, you know, if, if I want to go to a dark place, the, those aren't Jewish people that they're affecting. Those are other people. Those are, those are all kinds of well, they're not Isra- right. They're, they're not Israelis. Know. You know, we don't need to, so what? Well, first of all, I think, you know, in, uh, in the particular process of binary options first they banned it in israel and then they banned it abroad so initially it certainly was not a victimless crime even in israel right. and, and you know of course that that's a terrible argument 
and you're not making it. No, no, of no, course no, no. not. <laughs> right. Absolutely we're, not. We're just trying but, to understand the mentality, right. so of course. Partly, but I would add into that, it is a victim, a victim, what's the opposite of victimless? A victim full crime in Israel because the people doing it are, in a way, they are victims as well. They are being corrupted, right? I, have my, uh, <laughs> I don't want to betray any confidences here, but I would say I, there's a young person who I know who went to work at a binary options company on day one, and he was sent there by a manpower firm or whatever the, the terminology is, an employment, you know. Mm. HR headhunter. Right, he was sent there. He said the first day he realized, well, this is they're stealing money. Right, this, <laughs> it, it took him one day to work it out. Right, and and yet thousands of people went to the, these people used to advertise at Jewish agency Aliyah fairs abroad for staff to come and steal people's money oh from Israel. Right, so it's it's corrupting in every direction. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I, 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 the, I the Jewish agency, to their credit, we're talking the Sharansky era. Yeah. You know, we went to see Sharansky and we said, guys, you're being abused by crooks. And they were fantastic and they, they shut it down. And that's uh, good to hear, at least. Um, I, I want to transition to something we discussed earlier. So, you know, Benny and I were, were kind of preparing what, what, what it is we wanted to, to talk to you about in your limited time here. Um, this is one of a few, maybe two major English language Israeli newspapers, although a lot of the Israeli papers, the Hebrew papers, have English Pages. versions or pages um do you view you know you and you mentioned most of your readership is outside of israel with a significant you know 10 15 percent inside israel how do you view your position do you view your position as as more uh, catering to an israeli audience who happen to be english readers or do you also see the magnitude of your job as as explaining israel to the world because you know that's where at least Number-wise, that's where most of your readership sits. Look, I, you know, I uh, I think we I look at it as as journalism in in the traditional way, um, bringing stuff, bring material to the public's attention that it's important that they know about. Um, explaining is you know is part of what we do. It's sure. not, you know, we're not we're not um, explaining. Kind of uh, um, sounds a little bit condescending, and it's not really the way we look at it. Things happen. Uh, we tell people what's going on. Things are, are, are about to happen. Um, we, we interpret what's going on. We give people the tools, hopefully, to understand. Uh, bad things are going on. We expose them. Good things are going on. We, we tell people about them. You know, conventional journalism. Um, no, 100%. I meant, I meant even within journalism, and this, is, this might just be from my ignorance on understanding the, the journalistic world. There's a difference, I think, when you're reporting to an Israeli and saying this is what's happening in your country versus when you're reporting to a reader in London or New York or Hong Kong saying this is what's happening over there in Israel. Is there a difference? Do you see a difference? Or, or, or is it from your perspective you're going to do the same job? It's a really good question. And the reason I'm struggling to answer mm -hmm. it because I don't think there's a simple answer. And I think it goes to, to you know, the sort of unconscious, subconscious, instinctive ways we relate to, to that's things. Where, that's where we like to live. <laughs> <laughs> you know, by definition, you're filtering it, right? When I hear, you know, politicians stand up in the Knesset, they're speaking Hebrew and I'm actually literally typing it in English, right? It's already going through a process. When, when you watch, uh, maybe, a, maybe a better example, you, you watched that um, astounding interview that Yossi Cohen gave, the well, out, outgoing head of Mossad, right, two weeks ago. Yeah. And you watched this, and it went on for an hour, and, uh, and I spent sort of three, four hours, actually, because um, uh, I, I wrote about it, um, and you know, sort of transcribing what he was saying. You're filtering everything, cause, because um, we're at the Times of Israel, and we're, we're going to write a story about this. Now, um, 
and this is the beginning of a partial answer to your question. Um, I think that I'm right in saying that in, in some of the first Hebrew media reports on an interview that everybody watched at the same time, uh, the highlight was the headline, certainly in some, in some uh, online um, Hebrew sites, was related to, to Yossi Kohn's relationship with Netanyahu. Um, um, the, the, he said somewhere in that interview that he knows he pays a price for being perceived to be very close to Netanyahu. And in another Hebrew site, I think the headline was about um, he's promising to give back money that was um, given to, I think, his, uh, maybe his daughter for her wedding, uh, but I might be wrong about that, by um, um, an Australian business person who gave a lot of money and he's giving it back. Um, we didn't headline with either of those two things. We headlined with the revelations that I, th I personally thought were astonishing uh, regarding Iran. Um, he came close to acknowledging Israeli responsibility for sabotage in Natanz. Uh, in the course of that interview, Ilana Dayan, the interviewer, um, noted that the uh, marble platform on which Iranian centrifuges are balanced uh, at Natanz turned out to have been packed with explosives. That was either untrue or revelatory, but it certainly went through censorship. I th you know, we, th we thought that was pretty astonishing. So you know, we w in, in covering that story, we were filtering it through lots of, yeah. of, of subjective um, um, filters and, and, and to, to get to the headline. And somewhere in that mix is, you guys didn't watch this in Hebrew, we're your eyes and ears right. <clears throat> for, for this interview, which you, you are not going to understand or even be able to see many of people reading this. And therefore, you're know, asking me, well, why didn't the Times of Israel highlight, headline on his ties to Netanyahu? Why didn't the Times of Israel headline on that he's giving back money that, uh, that James Packer gave to his family? Because when all of those factors piled in, and it's an easy call, actually, in this case, that wasn't the most important stuff. You needed to know that the head of Mossad basically has said, I'm really familiar with Natanz, and we'd been watching Fakhrizada for years, and, you know, somebody else in that program said, yeah, it was the marble platform underneath the centrifuges. My goodness, right? Why on earth would we have said that? I don't begin to know. I'm sure there's some very smart people. But, you know, all of those things play in, and then I think you could, you know, you can carry the same kind of subjective processes that go on in, in, in the way we treat everything. And, and by the way, lots of, lots of readers might say, well, why is the Times of Israel leading on that? Right? Well, you know why? Because Chavivra, a really fascinating piece, and we've put it at the top of the site, because the, the main news story at the moment is less dramatic. It's there, so you have to scroll down a little bit further. There's innumerable factors. Yeah. It's just fascinating to us to try to understand you know, how such a complex operation as presenting reality, you know, how... You know, we're, we're just trying to get into your mind of how this works. That's like what fascinates us. You know, newspapers have been doing this. And what's amazing, actually, in my opinion, is, you know, we the guy gives an interview. We write it down. You press a few buttons. It's not quite as easy as that. And yeah. there it is, though, on the top of your site. And the whole <laughs> world can see it, right? right. When I, Again, getting back to how old I am. When I, <laughs> when I came to Israel how long you, how long in you've been 1983, <laughs> right, the Jerusalem Post had just moved from hot metal printing, right? And they were, then, they were using waxed uh, um, columns, physical columns that, would, that were stuck on a page. Now that sounds like antediluvian to you, right? That was the, the, the height of new technology. They were no <laughs> longer typing to produce hot metal letters that they then 
clamped into a frame to produce the paper. <laughs> and they were not behind the times. That was the norm. 40 yeah. years ago, when, when, um, uh, when the head of the Mossad gave a television interview, which, believe me, did not happen. <laughs> you, you didn't know who the head right, of the Mossad it was. was, it was until, always an acronym. Right? It, you know, th- that somebody would sit down, and then they'd have to type it up. And then this whole huge operation need to wheel it, need to wheel it. How did they produce newspapers every day? Every day. How do they do that? Sometimes right? different editions, too. <laughs> right. There was like a morning edition and, and an evening not, edition. And they're not full of typos. How did they manage that? I so, so yeah, it's a, it's great how how with what speed and dexterity we produce this material. But it, journalists have been doing the unthinkable all the way through. Yeah. I think. Look, yeah. you, you you said at the very interesting, you know, the, in this newspaper, every newspaper right now is sitting at the interesting. If they're in business, still they're sitting at this place in time where it's like we're going from the printing press, which is this technology that's been here since the 14th century, essentially, and at that time it was. Very, very revolutionary. Caused a lot of change. Caused a lot of conflict. Caused a lot of, uh, you know, people had to restructure the way that they appreciated and understood and navigated the reality uh, and communicated with one another. And and now we're in this this new digital sort of an age where we're we're, we're really. You know, I've heard it described uh, uh, recently as we're in. You might want to think that we're we're in the middle of it. We're really in the beginning of it in terms of you know yeah the shift from print to digital the, the, the shift from print to digital and how we communicate as 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 a species with one another and and the sort of social and cultural upheaval that we might go through as a result of how we uh, you know understand our reality appreciate our reality and and how do our democratic systems really find a way to persevere in the absence of a unified understanding of what truth is. Uh, and I think that you have an incredible responsibility. I don't know how you how you do it. I, I think in, in in essence, you've said it many times. You know, I'm, you're just doing what you're doing, and that's what you know to do. It's it's you're doing journalism, and you have an appreciation for for facts and and authenticity. Uh, but man, I mean, it's it's got to be a challenge. And 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 I'm you know, on the one hand, I'm happy that you don't have that big clunky printing press here in in, a, in another room. On the other hand, um, you know. You gotta, you gotta wonder. Like, I mean, you're, you're, you're. We live in this Twitter world where, where Twitter, Facebook, social media, what have you. It's like, are the people dictating through what they're talking about? What is the the, the headline of the day, or are we telling, or we, you, uh, anybody in, in in more traditional media, telling them what's important to understand, and uh, and uh, and ultimately. You know, where do we go from here? And where do you see yourself going from here? You have a, a live blog. You talked about that. I mean, that's obviously a, yeah. a something that's part of a new digital age that that wasn't present in, in other newspapers. And, okay, so you you know you're you're struggling and 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 trying to grapple with some of the challenges that we deal with, and so are we. Okay, and and as you know, we could talk a lot about this, and I'm not sure how coherently you know comprehensive we could be, but some points. So the, just specifically about the light, the issue of live blogging, we're not the only people who do it. But you know, you can immediately put something up that that is significant, rather than taking the the hour or two to to provide a you know a fully nuanced story. And we do both. And we started live blogging because there was there was material that we needed to get out even more quickly than an hour. That may sound you know, obvious yeah, now, but that sounded like a big deal even ten years ago. Wow, really? We can't afford to yeah, wait somet- the half an so- hour. Sometimes no. it gives me anxiety <laughs> because I'll because I'll, I'll click on something. It's like holy shit, Bennett said something about tourism not coming back in July. So I clicked on it. Where's the content? There's yeah, no content. No, that was it. It's just the headline. Right? What does that well, mean? Well, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll give you the content as soon as we can physically type it up. Yeah. But that, you know, it points to a deeper, complex 
challenge for journalism, which is you have to be both fast and accurate today, and, and you can't be both. It's impossible. The faster you are, the less accurate you will be. The more accurate it will be, the longer it takes you to do right. it. So that's no, there isn't, there's no escaping that. And you, you, you use all the skills that you can to try to be as fast as you can and as accurate as you can to present um, your material in a way that conveys to the reader. A live blog, it says, this is the live blog. It means it's, it's, it's instant, right? And therefore, as far as we know, that's what happened this second. It's really important that we're telling you. We'll look into it further. But it's, it's, it's really difficult. The bigger issue that you're talking about, you know, it, <laughs> I, I, again, I don't want to sound, you know, dramatic here or, or, or anything. I, I think journalism is, is really, really important. Independent journalism. I think it's a noble profession. You know, among its core... Um, requirements goals uh, obligations is you know we don't we don't have the time ordinary people to run our our own lives in in all of the, the aspects of governance right and therefore we elect people and we trust them and we empower them to act on our behalfs and you need credible independent fair-minded coverage of what they're doing on your behalf and if you don't have that if all the coverage is skewed to make them look good or to make them look bad or if the coverage is so pusillanimous and pathetic that it doesn't cover them effectively either, you're harming your own democracy, right? You're not going to have the leadership that you deserve. The leadership is not going to feel, wow, we need to look out and make sure we look after our public because our own self-interest, we're going to be exposed as incompetent or corrupt and so on. It's really, really important. And I think you lose sight. You know, I think in Israel, we are blessed with, with, with a, a really diverse range of journalistic outlets. I think it's really important. I think, you know, sometimes, you know, people used to complain Israel's overcovered internationally. I don't know about overcovered, undercovered. I think it's really important that you have independent journalism in, in, in all democracies. I care most of all about Israel, and therefore it's very important. I think we should be aware there are plenty of other countries. I remember once somebody telling me she was a BBC reporter in Nigeria, and she, then she'd come to Israel, and she said, you know, I'd go out in the morning, and I'd know if I go down that street... All the other really important things that are going on in all these other streets, nobody's going to write about them because there's only me and I think there was a correspondent from Reuters, right? You don't have that in Israel. There's no shortage of people potentially going down all the streets, but there's an awful lot of, of repetitive coverage. There's everybody, you know, there's too much or, the, or, or I don't even, I don't want to say too much, but there's an awful lot of uh, conveying, who can be the first to convey the information and in social media, and to convey it with some little snarky or quirky little uh, personal post to make it, you know, really attractive. It, that has its value. It doesn't have its value. That, for me, is not core journalism. Core journalism is telling people stuff that they need to know, whether somebody is putting it out for their benefit or whether you've had to, to, to drag it out from under 10 rocks and go through who knows what kind of legal hurdles in order to bring it to the public's attention. I think that's really, really important. Otherwise, democracies do not function properly. No, that's a brilliant defense of journalism in uh, in democracies, and and I think that issue that you brought up, Benny, is something that we've talked about before on different episodes with different journalists, philosophers, thinkers, writers, and it's something you know uh, we could easily dive into. Um, has the we we read a lot about, and and like I said, we've talked to journalists that the financial kind of business side of journalism has really taken a hit in recent years. Um, people are much less buying physical prints of things. Many magazines have switched to digital. How has that, I mean, you're only digital. I mean, that's kind of one of the, the new things here. Um, how did you approach this kind of new challenge in the modern era? And how are you constantly thinking about the business of viability of running, um, of running a, 
running a newspaper in today's age, taking into account what you mentioned earlier that you have limited number of people who have to live blog and write journalism and analysis and translation, etc. How do you juggle all that? What are your thoughts kind of on the business side of journalism today? Okay, so, you know, this is this was a, a it is a digital publication only. And the fact that I, you know, that from nothing, we we, we, we set up the Times of Israel and, uh, and, and it's <coughs> thrived very successfully online. Um, nobody should, should get... Um, the, the indication from that that I'm some kind of um, startup y person or entrepreneurial person. I'm really a journalist and I really wanted to do this. And I um, worked with some very smart people when we were designing and conceptualizing the site, which is largely a, a, a reason in, uh, for it being as user friendly and good as the site is and continues to be. And it was, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I should be telling you all this, but. Um, <laughs> but, but you are now. But, but, you know, it was set up. This, this Times of Israel thing was set up from a journalist viewpoint. If you look at the staffing and the proportion of staff who are involved in journalism and the people who are on the business side, I'm not going to give you the numbers, but uh, it, there is a radical... I can't imagine there, that there are many journalistic uh, outlets that are as successful in terms of audience as we are where, um, where so much of, of the... Uh, where, where the radical degree of the emphasis in staffing was on the, was on the content side. And that's partly a function of the fact that I have a partner who was who was prepared to um, to to give us the resources to do this. But it's not uh, you know as the years have gone by, we've gradually built up the business side, and we need to keep doing that because the publication needs to be um, sustainable, uh, and it and it gets stronger and stronger over time. It really has done as the traffic has grown. Of course, revenue from page views and the advertising on page views has grown. We now do something called the Times of Israel Community, where we encourage people. Nothing is behind a paywall. All all our content right. is open. Um, but it's, a, if, it's appreciated. <laughs> okay, good. No, but I, you know, it, that's the point. The point is that what we do, we want people to be able to read it. But if it's important to them, and if they think it's of value for them, um, they can help fund it. And the more people join the community, we we do some special uh, programming for them. Um, the articles, there's no there's no articles that are not available. But there's there's there are things that we do for community on, only. We do online events for for community. There's there, there are all kinds of things that we do. And people, it's really quite, it, first of all, it's very nice and much appreciated and, re- and increasingly important financially um, as, the, as the, the community has grown. And it's not just give us some money. It's if you'd like to, to help um, finance what we do, you know, we'll, we'll also be, be more available to you. That's broadly speaking what, it, what I would say. It seems like a lot of things today are kind of going in this collaborative, cooperative type model. I mean, that's... Well, kinda, there's that or there's the paywall. I mean, the, right. the alternative, sure. which is, uh, you know, a perfectly... Uh, a legitimate alternative. Why shouldn't you pay for all the work that we're mm-hmm. doing? Sure. Um, and and lots of newspapers have adopted that, and some newspapers have adopted the kind of community model that that we do, and some papers um, have uh, re- remain open. But there's no. Uh, it's very very difficult to do a lot of original journalism um, and not have some kind of um, uh, income that is not merely advertising on the right. pages, right? However high your traffic is. It's an expensive business. I mean, just imagine, um, you know, the complexity of investigative journalism and the endless reporting that goes in and the legal checks that need to be taken, et cetera, et cetera. It's not, 
um, it's not cheap stuff. Uh, convert, uh, mimicking everybody else's content, taking other people's articles, uh, reducing them to a few paragraphs and publishing them, uh, publishing material about what time a television program starts. There's a great no piece. No one does that. Who uh, does you, that? You know what? Some re- <laughs> there, was a, there was a piece by a sports reporter at The Guardian last week encouraging people to give money to The Guardian. And he, he was very, very funny in terms of what some... Um, outlets do and where they gain all their traffic, <laughs> right? So there are there are quite easy and not expensive ways to get a lot of people uh, reading your content, but it might not always be particularly good content. And or and or you can be very intrusive in terms of pop up advertising and and all sorts of other things that you do. So if you want the site to be aesthetically um, reasonable and not a deterrent to reading, uh, and you want to do good original journalism, it's uh, you know it's it, there, there have to be other sources of revenue. Yeah, and 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 one of the things in terms of content that you guys have excelled at so greatly, and I think we'll wrap up with this is is you have you have uh, published an amazing array of interviews with people uh, both both uh, large and. Uh, up and coming. Uh, can you give us a little bit of like the highlights of people that you've? <laughs> yeah, we, we talked about Obama and Putin. Uh, so what? What are? And those? you're still here. You've interviewed Putin <laughs> and you didn't disappear. You keep saying that. We don't need to keep stressing that. It's okay. <laughs> it's fine. It's just. Now, fine. What, what are some Note of your highlights? No, I, <laughs> I will. T- I will tell you. I'll, I'll tell you two. Th- I'll tell you three. Three things quickly. Okay. First of all, um, I, I, the most um, obviously charismatic. Um, person that I've come into indirect contact with. I don't think that I ever did any... I had a very brief conversation with Bill Clinton. He came to Israel uh, for an event a few years ago, and um, and he just lit up this room. It was an astonishing thing. So this is not a me-related story, but it was just astonishing to see the effect. I mean, he, he, he walked into the room, and it was like... It was magnetic. Um, and you've heard other people say that about other people, but I, but you really saw it. Everybody was just like... like an energy well, shift. Yeah, was, yeah. And Obama's was... was um, you know, also, an incredibly charismatic person. I think I had, I can't remember how long it was, but it was it was about 20 minutes. It might have been less. Uh, I don't think it was more with uh, one-on-one in, with Obama when he came here before uh, he became president. He was, a, he was staying at the King David. You know, in, incredibly charismatic, some sort of energy that comes out of them. There's a, there's a person who, who you are far too young to even know. Well, you might. You might have seen the movie Some Like It Hot. There was a, an actor, Jack Lemmon. Yeah, of course. Sure. So on. I interviewed Jack Lemmon once. Um, <laughs> he was in a play that was coming to Israel, and therefore, um, and I was in London at the time. I interviewed him. He was doing that play before bringing it to Israel. And he was just, he was magnificent. He was so funny. He was so charismatic. It was like, that was like one of the most wonderful uh, interviews I've ever done. And by the way, one of the best things about journalism, because I hope some people listening and watching to this would want to go into journalism, is that you can go into other people's worlds, yeah. their expertise, and they'll talk to you with, with grace and graciousness. Well, that's, that's why we like doing this podcast. It's, it's I mean, so nice, right? Yeah. To, and, and then you to convey it to your readers. It's, it's such a love, it's a, it's a joy, that aspect of the job. The, the, the final thing on, on this is my worst <laughs> failure <laughs> as an interviewer, which is I interviewed Paul McCartney by phone, I should stress, not in person, before he came to Israel in 2007. So McCartney comes to Israel in 2007, and, and he was he's so nice, right? Arguably, I think, the most famous person in the world some of the yeah, time, right? Sure, sure. And concerned that in Israel, are they going to, he asked me, are they going to know some of my less <laughs> famous stuff, right? I, I know they'll know the Beatles stuff, but are they going to know some of my stuff? I'm like, Paul, they've been playing like nonstop Paul McCartney, you know, for the last month in Israel. They know every, <laughs> every song you've ever recorded has been on the radio. But he was truly concerned. You know, would people get the set? I think yeah, they love you here, Paul. Don't, don't worry about it. But why was it such a disaster for me? Because... 
Paul McCartney's been asked every question under the sun endless times, and yet there's a whole part of his life that is most relevant for Israel, and I didn't ask him about it. So to see if you're smarter than I am. Okay. I'm trying what to would think. you have asked him about that really matters more to, to people in this country than almost anywhere else in the world? Okay, so I'll, I'll spare you the long silence. Spare the long silence. Yeah. His first know. wife, his beloved late oh, wife, right. Linda, was Jewish. For goodness sake, his right, children sure. are Jewish. I didn't know that. I didn't ask him anything about it. It's like terrible. So you know, why, uh, why not? Because it didn't occur to me to ask him until after. <laughs> because it didn't occur to you that that was the most important thing. <laughs> I, I didn't like, know that. Because I'm a huge Beatles fan. I did know it. It's just like unforgivable. It's a terrible thing, right? But anyway, nothing worse should happen. And please God, I'll get the chance to ask him. I mean, I mean, maybe we'll kind of wrap up with with this question related to that is. You get 20 minutes with Barack Obama. You get 15 minutes with other world leaders whose names won't be mentioned. How, how do you decide? <laughs> how do you decide what's the one or two questions I'm going to ask these massively important famous people? How do you decide that? Look, you, you, what, what, what's, what, what's going to matter most? Yeah. Where you're going to, where you're going to get somewhere? You yeah. know, in other words, asking a question where you know the answer already, and yeah, it's like you know, pro forma because you've got to get Obama to say something about Iran. You know, that, that's not terribly helpful if it's stuff he said 10 times right. before. So you're, you're looking for something that really matters and where you actually don't know what he's going to say or mm. where it's really important to have him or her say something because they're, they're not on the record on that and it really matters. I don't know. It's, you know, you're looking for angles. That's what it is. You know, what, what are you going to, to try and take something forward that matters? I guess that's the difference between a good interviewer and a less and there good are, you interviewer. Know, you, sure. you look at uh, you know that um, I don't even begin to understand what that Mossad, where that Mossad interview came from, and why Yossi Cohen gave it. Although I think we can assume I think we can we can take guesses. There, there was some self, but you know the interview was really good. Um, oh, she's fantastic. Uh, people, you know, there are lots of very good interviewers in this country. Uh, Yonit Levy speaking in, to people in Italian <laughs> or, or every yeah, other right? language that she speaks on Channel Twelve. You know, there there are plenty of very good interviewers. But that's the, you're, you're looking for an angle. You're looking to take something forward. Um, to, to find out something well actually I, re I didn't know that's amazing or that's terrible or that's fascinating uh, to you know again at the risk of repeating myself for the 83rd time so you know trying trying to take the story forward because with, with the privilege of having yeah. the access that you've had I'm going to sneak in a last question here just because <laughs> <laughs> um, we didn't get a chance to dive into kind of your understanding of the Israeli media landscape but do you find a difference between Israeli journalists and, let's say, Western journalists in how upfront they're willing to be with political leaders, in how fair they are, in how, I, I don't know, in worldview, you know, if, if you had to kind of just talk about the, the average good Israeli journalist versus uh, any other Western journalist, how would you so compare So I'm them? not sure that I know enough about how journalism works outside of Israel because, you know, I've really You've really yeah, been, I've been, been here, here for sure. such a long time and, and this is where all my journalism is. But I, I think there's a lovely thing about Israel, generally speaking, and it's the, um, <laughs> the, the readiness to, to, to ask anything um, the in-your-faceness, it's not a bad thing. I mean, if it de devolves into, into contempt and, and viciousness, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, you know, looking somebody in the eye. You happen to be the, the Minister of Defense and I happen to be a journalist or anything else, that, you know, people on the bus asking you how much you pay for your rent and where, how much your apartment is worth. You know, these, these are good things, right? Yeah. We, we choose different paths in our lives. Our journalists do journalism and we interview the people that we interview and we should be able to, you know, have normal conversations when, when neither side is, is, is condescending and neither side is, is out to, you know, screw the other person over. Yeah. 
you know, this is nowhere near your question, but if, you know, to end, if we want to end on something, you know, we're, we're talking as people who care about the well-being of the Jewish state. And, and at the core of Judaism is, you know, treating other people the way you would wish to be treated yourselves. And, you know, this, this covers lots of the things that we talked about, but it's, you know, essential human behavior. If we could remember that, I mean, what does Judaism deserve to survive? Because some of it, because its core is so morally healthy and good. You know, we need to remember that when we're doing journalism, when we're doing our podcasts, and I, so, I am so not perfect, that's not my point here. It, that's not my point here. My point is is to strive for that. Mm. You know, treat people the way you would want to be treated. You know, journalism would have less bad things to expose. We could write about some of the better things. All our lives would be better. And that's the core of Judaism. Well Fantastic. said. So, David Horvitz, thank you very, very much. Thank you, folks. Yeah, this has been excellent. Thank you so much. People uh, can follow you, of course, on Times of Israel, they can. where, where yeah. you, you produce this fantastic newspaper and you write regular columns. Um, and the people want to follow you on social media, how can they do so? Uh, you, look, I, I post some of, I post the articles I write on Facebook and sometimes on Twitter. Um, I, I'm, you know, read the site. That's, that's why I'd read like the you site. to go. Read the site. Fantastic. And uh, thank you so much for being here sure. on Juanced and for hosting us in your offices. Pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.